0: So now you're writing another book about the slavery in the Old Testament, is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I wrote this one, the one that I held up earlier. Um, it did the Old Testament endorse slavery? And it it's th- thinner uh, than the next one will be. Um, and that video, I mean that video, that book was born out of uh, the research and the the scripts that I put together to respond to um, a series of videos on slavery in the Old Testament put out by uh, Mike Winger, who I don't know. I don't know if you're familiar with Mike Winger, but he's a Christian apologist online, fairly popular. And uh, a colleague of his or a friend of his, uh, whose name is, um, I think it's John McRae, uh, but he goes by Woody Meme, And they're both very popular uh very popular YouTube figures and uh Christian apologists. And there were people that were like, Hey, what do you think about these arguments? Are they any good? And so that's where my journey into slavery in the Hebrew Bible and an ancient Near East began. Uh you know, much like Bilbo walking away from uh underhill, uh here here I was on my journey (laughs) and I feel like I I'm still making my way to the lonely mountain. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry, that was really nerdy of me, but, um, so I, I put these scripts together and it was basically like, okay, what are your arguments? Uh, yeah. Like, what are their arguments? Okay. Well here I'll address these, but I have to go a little more broad. Like, I have to give some foundations. Like, what are the texts in the Hebrew Bible, the legal sections that deal with slavery? And so I addressed those, the the big three, right? Exodus 21, uh, Deuteronomy 15, and Leviticus 25. And then I added on some other ones that come into the debate. And then I went through and said, okay, well, what are the other ancient Near Eastern law collections, like the laws of Hammurabi and the laws of Oranama and the laws of Eshnunna and Lepidishtar, blah, 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 blah? What do they say uh, about slavery? and how do they compare? And so that, but it was the briefest of comparative analysis between those law collections. It was mostly focused on what does the, you know, what do the laws say in the Hebrew Bible? And uh, it, it's, it's a fairly popular book. Um,
0: oh, good. So we're going to put that, um the link. Yeah.
1: Well. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, And I, I, I try to price these things so that they're, affordable to people and what's funny is um they've made their way all of our books have made their way onto like the dark net right like you can you can illegally download them but what we said and somebody started tweeting it like tweeting the link saying and and i think they meant well like hey this is an important book uh you know if you if you want to read it here it is you should read it it's important but megan my wife who's also an a um who i don't know if you know megan but she is uh, megan lewis she's the uh host of bart ehrman's new podcast uh misquoting jesus
0: yes i saw i saw her interview with
1: Yeah. yeah um and she, so she's, you know, she's got some clout <laughs> and she uh, she tweeted at this person and said, please stop doing this. And then retweeted it and said, look, what, we, like we publish these ourselves. They're popular level books. We get scholars to read them uh, so that we have our own, you know, form of peer review. Uh, like the Atheist Handbooks, the first one was read by Joel Baden uh, up at the Divinity School and Francesca Stavrakopoulou. Um, and then Volume Two, which has a lot of archaeology about the Exodus and the conquest, was read by Eric Klein and uh, Kenneth Atkinson. Adkinson. Got some uh, good peer reviewers. Yeah, um, we, we, we we take that stuff pretty seriously. Uh, and actually, even our Learn to Read Ancient Sumerian books are read by other Sumerologists from like Chicago and um, Tubingen. And, and so anyway, um. But she tweeted and said, listen, if you really can't afford, like this is part of how we make our living. Like it's a significant loss if somebody bought us, like steals a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you really need it, any of our books, and you actually can't afford it, and like every book is on Kindle for 10 bucks, right? I mean, like if you need it, most people can scrape together 10 bucks. But if you can't, email us. We will send you a PDF. Um, And we have, like, I think probably to date, maybe eight or 10 people have emailed us and said, I I really am, I'm saving up to buy it. But in the meantime, would it be okay if I asked for a PDF? There you go. No problem. Um, And we're okay with that because, uh, you know, as as you may know, uh, books are not cheap, generally speaking, in academic fields so like i've got an article coming out in uh in a book called um uh misusing scripture what are evangelicals doing with the old testament and it's it's from rutledge so it's not it's not a cheap publication now there are some powerhouse scholars publishing i was very very honored to be asked to, to put an article in there. Mine is on violence and genocide in the, in the Old okay. Testament. Um,
0: well, congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yeah, but it, like I was floored to be asked by Robert Rosetko, who's one of the editors, to uh, contribute. I was like, why? Why, why do you...
0: <laughs> <laughs> me? Why, <Okay. laughs> why,
1: why are you asking me? Um, but uh, it's because I have this Assyriological angle that I can apply to the text. Anyhow um but uh yeah so the second i'm working on a second edition of the slavery book and basically what i wanted to do was one of the things that happens as you have probably seen is that in apologetics online um well it's like what the hydra the three-headed hydra isn't it the one you cut the head off
0: yeah three more go
1: back in its place yep. that's what happens in my experience in online apologetics. So like I came in and they were making all these apologies making these terrible, terrible arguments about slavery, right? It's like owning a credit card or it's like having a job or it's like trading football players or blah, blah, blah. Okay. So I feel like when I came in, we sufficiently shut those arguments down 95%, right? Most of those arguments don't come up anymore um they do but not nearly as frequently but if you you know if you've ever heard that phrase throw it up against the wall and see what sticks like that's that's what has happened in its place so you know like they come up with some other harebrained theory like oh well you know maybe the you know the slaves were actually um brought in because then they would convert. What do you think about that? And they throw that at you. And it's like, okay. So then you spend time dealing with that. And then you say, okay, look, here's the thoughtful response to that. Here's why it doesn't work. And they go, okay, sure, sure, sure. But what about this one? And you're like, oh my God, like, oh, because if you ever say, I don't have time for this anymore.
0: Aha, <laughs> that's
1: the argument that worked, you know? Um, so a lot of new throw it up against the wall and see what sticks arguments have come out. So I'm going to address those. I'm going to really beef up the ancient Near Eastern law section. So I'm going through in meticulous detail and looking at all of the laws that deal with slavery in any way in the ancient Near Eastern law collections and giving commentary on each one Okay. and drawing broad patterns. And then we'll have a big comparative section, uh, that talks about like, how does this, how does this compare to what we see in the Hebrew Bible? Uh, so yeah, a lot of new stuff that's going to be in there, and I'm I'm really excited about it. It's uh, it's more than I ever thought I would be looking at the topic of slavery, but here we are.
0: Here We are. Um, so if 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 you were to give a sneak peek at the kind of in broadest terms, how does it how does slavery laws in the Old Testament compare to? you know, Egyptian or other Middle Eastern ones? Like, how would you go about that?
1: Uh, They're basically the same. Okay. Um, Yeah, which is unsurprising. uh, Because this is true. Like, in volume two, uh, the Atheist Handbook, I have a section on adultery and rape laws. And I do detailed comparative analysis between the law collections in the ancient Near East when they talk about adultery and rape and then comparing them to the laws in the Hebrew Bible about adultery and rape. And essentially what you see, and I had Jay Caballero, who is down at university of Texas, Austin, and he is, uh, A and E Hebrew Bible legal specialist. Who's getting ready to finish his PhD studies under a guy named Bruce Wells, who is another ancient Near Eastern Hebrew Bible legal specialist. But, um, I had him read through the, the chapter and said, Hey, critique the hell out of it. Like, what am I missing something? And he had some good insights, um, but, uh, which was unsurprising. Uh, but essentially like in the end, it's, it's about the same, right? The, and, and in fact, there are some places in like the laws of Hammurabi, for example, where a debt slave, if, if you take a debt slave, like you do in Exodus 21 or Deuteronomy 15, um, they are only supposed to serve for three years. Mm-hmm. and they get released in the fourth year, and the debt is paid. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they serve for six years, released in the seventh to pay the debt. So like if you if you did that, you'd be like, "Oh my gosh, you know, the Hebrew Bible is like, you know, grotesquely immoral. It keeps people for twice as long to pay off the debt. Yeah, I mean, okay, but the thing is, there are other places where it's like, yeah, the ancient Near Eastern law is a little worse here, and the Hebrew Bible is a little better here. I mean, it's they're they're all essentially on par with one another. Now, I will say, um, that there are some more utopian, uh, ideas that show up in Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25 that are predicated. Uh, they're predicated. First of all, they're, they're only for Israelites. Like the benefits are only for Israelites. They're not for foreign slaves. They're just for uh, Israelite slaves. But there are some things. Like in Deuteronomy 15, it says, um, if you release when you release your slave in the seventh year, you don't just turn him out free of his debt. You like give him a bunch of shit, a bunch of food, a bunch of supplies. You know, you 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 make sure that he doesn't fall back into poverty. Okay. Well, that's that's unheard of, right, in the ancient Near law collections. Um, and so you might think, and people have written on this, like, oh, my gosh, great humanitarian mm-hmm. uh, developments. Yeah, I mean, sure, in that respect, if they actually had done that, that would be good. Um, but it's also utopian in nature because it, it didn't actually happen. It wasn't something that would have been actually economically viable, Right. And the text anticipates that because the text says, "Well, how are we going to do that? Well, Yahweh is going to supernaturally provide for you." Right. Right. So, then if
0: he doesn't, then
1: then it wouldn't work, right? So these are this these are very much that's why I call it like utopian, and I'm not the yeah. you know I didn't come up with that. That's that's a scholarly thing, but. um, Yeah, so but but on the whole, when you actually get sort of down to brass tacks, um, the the laws tend to be just on par with one another in general.
0: So that's that's actually surprising to me, Mm. and I'll tell you why. Because um, my understanding is that the ancient Israelites were not exactly city or urban dwelling people, Mm. whereas people in Mesopotamia were or were more settled, right in the in the urban or in rural places, but they were not shepherds,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, and so this
0: you'd, is... you'd you'd expect very different laws for very different socioeconomic constructs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say certainly in the early Iron Age, uh, you know that that sort of thing, you know, being up in the highlands and these little, you know, these uh, hundreds, you know, of, uh, these little these little sites that that pop up um this is uh sort of a, ha- how uh the specifics of how people lived in their um socioeconomic system is actually a subfield in the study of the hebrew bible that i don't have a specialization in so i won't i won't venture to comment on it uh because it it takes into account things like the archaeological data um mm. which is specific to each period um but, yes, I mean, that the reason that it's unsurprising is that what these law collections are. um, and this is a, this is also something that I will talk about. So, one of the things that scholars realized um, over the last maybe fifty six years is uh, maybe even more recently, well, I, mean, anyway, yeah, in the last fifty to sixty years. Is that these law collections, everybody thought like the code of Hammurabi was a code, right? It's like Hammurabi says, <clears throat> here's my big steely. This is the law of the land now, right? So if a judge is going to like hear a case, he's going to be like, okay, the litigants come up and they're like, yeah, this guy did this and he took by, you know, sheep and now whatever. And and the judge goes, okay.
0: Law number two hundred and twenty says. Yeah,
1: that's right. It says here that the penalty is thirty shackles of silver. So you know, hit my gavel, thirty shackles of silver. That's not how these things functioned, right? Um, and so, what they did complicated. There's not a consensus on that yet. Um, Pamela Barmash, uh, I think, in her 2020 book, 2020 or 2021 wrote on the laws of Hammurabi, and basically, like, she's she's giving her idea of of what the, the, the laws of Hammurabi are doing in particular, but she goes through. Uh, but Bruce Wells, you know, has a really important article, I think in 2009, where he goes through and says, here's what everybody thinks, the different biblical law collections, the ideas of what the law collections could be doing. Are they propaganda? Are they just wisdom laws? Are they actual legislation? Are they, you know, all kinds of different ideas, scribal exercises. Most people think they're scribal exercises now, um, but then what that means differs among different the, interpretations. The,
0: the Mesopotamian ones or Babylonian ones? or The, the biblical B- ones as well. The biblical one.
1: okay. Yeah. So um, yeah, if you look, um, there's a lot, a very specific overlap, particularly in places like the Covenant Code in Exodus 20, uh, 21, um, where you just see a lot of ancient near eastern uh you know uh, uh, uh effects or um why am I blanking on the term dependence upon mm-hmm. these ancient near eastern law collections artifacts uh yeah, just the but the effect itself the dependence right. that they have upon them, and uh we know that things like the laws of Hammurabi were used in scribal education in Mesopotamia, um, and coming down into the first millennium. So like how that plays out, what that did to scribes in training in, um, uh, in Israel or in like Babylonian captivity and, you know, following the Babylonian captivity, those sorts of things. It's all very complex, you know, that, that we're getting outside of my, um, specific area when we get into the first millennium, but, um, when it comes to scribal education but uh yeah so so that's why it's not terribly surprising in in one uh from one aspect but the the rest is there's Bruce Wells and actually more recently um oh boy, what's his name johnson uh can't remember his first name anyway uh uh, wrote an article, I think it's Jonathan, Wrote an article, uh, uh, basically taking Bruce Wells' um, methodology to 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 apply it to another area in Deuteronomy. But basically, Bruce Wells uh, said, "Okay, there are common ways of thinking about the laws." and common ways of addressing things that come up in the laws. For example, um, like, how do you determine if, uh, if we didn't have any witnesses, how do you determine if a woman committed adultery with this guy or was raped by this guy Mm -hmm. in their minds? Like they have sort of a litmus test that they use and it's based on geography. So If they're in the city or if they're in a house uh, and there are no witnesses, she must have consented. Because if she was raped in their mind, she would have screamed. Right. Now, if anybody's seen Law & Order SVU, right, or thinks about that for more than nine or ten seconds nowadays, like, oh, well, that's not necessarily true, right? Um, But... You know they didn't. Mm. That that wasn't their their state of mind, and so they thought, well, certainly if she's getting raped, uh, she either would have screamed or she would have left the house and yelled out in the street, "I just got raped!" Right. So if there are no witnesses, um, and it's like after the fact, and she's saying that she got raped, well, if it's in the city or in a house. Mm, You know, we have to assume that she she was complicit. She consented to that. But if it's out in the field that the sexual interaction took place, well, then we can't make that assumption, and so we have to give her the benefit of the doubt that she did scream out, but nobody was there to
0: hear her. But nobody heard. Yeah.
1: Right. Um. And so there's there's a common legal, um, litmus test, right? Rationale trying to get to how to determine those, those types of things. And it plays out in different areas in the law. Uh, and I'm certainly not a legal expert. Like nobody should hear that I'm a legal expert here, either in the ancient Eastern law collections or in the Hebrew Bible, but, uh, I've read a lot of the literature, so, um, there's commonality between them. So you see those things in, uh, you have the law collections and you see those things in the Hebrew Bible. So they think similarly and they come up with similar um, resolutions to these problems.
0: And which one do you think came first?
1: Oh, uh, I don't think anybody would say any, I mean, maybe online apologists might, but uh, the like we have laws, law collections going back to the third millennium. Right. Um, so absolutely the uh, you know, the the Mesopotamian traditions,
0: and first, hmm. and not Egyptian.
1: Um, so Egyptian law, obviously, way now we're way outside of my area of expertise because uh, I don't actually even know Egyptian. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but if people are interested, this two volume set is. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, so, Raymond Westbrook, who was a professor at Hopkins, uh, he died the year that I came to Hopkins, but he's an Assyriologist, uh, but he's an ancient Eastern law. He was an ancient Eastern law specialist. And uh, he essentially brought together this powerhouse team of specialists in Egyptology. Um, you know, people that study Ugarit, people that, uh, you know, did, do a seriology Hebrew Bible, like every, and, and from all the different periods going back into the third millennium, all the way down to I think, I don't think he gets into the Persian period. I'm not sure. I can't remember, but, um, and just saying, all right, write about law in that particular place. And in that particular time, and it's always their area of specialization. So, like the Egyptian stuff from the Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom, uh, like uh, the late period, like all that stuff is written about from a, from a legal standpoint, and it's written by experts in their fields. So, excellent
0: work. Uh, and yet another example of the Oxford Handbook.
1: Yes, uh, it's 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 two volumes because it was just too much to put in the <laughs> one but uh, like uh, the the um the section on ancient israel was done by uh Tikva Frymer Kensky and she did a i think a, a, a phenomenal job i don't agree with everything that she said um but i mean like she's she was definitely an expert uh in that and i just think newer stuff has, has maybe come out since that but anyway Excellent, excellent resource.
0: Highly recommend.
1: I use it every day. Uh, um, I had to actually bring it back upstairs to put it on the shelf so that the bookcase wouldn't have all these gaps in it.
0: Right, we wouldn't want that, would we? No. Um, Sorry. So judging by what you said, it would seem that the laws haven't really changed, haven't evolved over time right if, if there was kind of one thing that yeah the same across
1: there's a quote by raymond westbrook in his introduction to that series and he says you know we're used to in in modern times the law developing at a frenetic pace like it's just you know because there are all these new things that's come up mm-hmm. right because as you were talking about like how people live and they interact with and those types of things and, and the way that they make their living, all those things drive what legal situations will arise. Right. And, and so in a, in a time that those sorts of socioeconomic, um, you know, those patterns didn't really develop because technology was developing a lot more slowly, um, the situations that people faced didn't change quite as quickly, um, whereas in the modern world, like, it's always changing, right? So the laws have to change and they have to adjust and develop, and um, so yeah, like you'll see that things that they're dealing with in the laws of Ornama at the end of the third millennium, they're still dealing with in the law collections of the Hebrew Bible, um, and. You know, the, the values of the penalties might change a little bit, you know, like maybe it's five shekels of silver as a penalty here and it's fifteen over here or right. fifteen here or thirty here. But the 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 general way that they deal with it right. remains the same. The-